Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullick. to the Staff and Graph Podcast, Raptors Championship Edition. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullick. Rachel, I have had like, I don't know, the worst 24 hours of my life when it comes to, I think my body finally reacted properly to the lack of sleep that I've been getting over the last week. And I've somehow got myself to a point where I can actually talk physically about hockey now. But man, it's been a weird week and, and this is like kind of the culmination of it. And I also feel like it the week is not even close to being done yet. We have the draft this week, and like it seems as if 87 things happened while we were busy celebrating the Raptors, and I haven't really said anything on Twitter about it because I felt like we were going to talk about it in depth today, and that's exactly what we're going to do. We're basically going to talk about, oh my goodness, all of the things. All right, I don't even know where to start. This is a hockey podcast. We can touch on some of the Raptors stuff at the very, very, very end. But for now, what is something we should talk about? Carlson, Truba, like, I don't know where to start. Why don't we go with, like, chronological order, which would be, I guess, Carlson, right? Okay, so for, if in case you missed it, Eric Carlson signed an eight-year deal for, let's call it, $11.5 million? Yeah, it's a certain percentage of the cab, so, but no more than eleven five. I would assume it'll end up at around eleven one or eleven two just based on what we're hearing about the cap. Um, and that's another side topic that we'll have to touch on. The cap, earlier in the season, everyone forecasted at $83 million at the Board of Governors meeting. That's what Bettman said. Now it's looking like it's going to be south of $82 million. I don't know if it gets as low as 81.5, but it's definitely going to be at least a million less than we anticipated a few months ago, and that's going to have some serious consequences on teams who are tied up against the cap. Yeah, and that's, that's a big problem because for players who are... Um, kind of looking for a little bit more than league men or um, some players who kind of would be able to go after teams um, on PTOs and things like that, I think that they're probably going to get squeezed out just because when you take a million dollars off the cap, like that's an entire player off yeah. the cap. Or that's the difference between keeping and not keeping a guy like Kasperi Kapanen, for example, or one of those mid-tier guys. Or yeah, and like Tampa's going to be in trouble now because they've got to re-sign point. They're probably going to have to trade Callahan. I mean, they were planning on trying to sign Eric Carlson, so I think that they have a few moves sorted out when it comes to clearing out cap. Yeah, if they would have signed Carlson, I would have just been like, all right. <laughs> the salary cap doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. Like, sorry, actually, it's just a social construct, and it's not even real. It'll be like the Larry Bird rule in the NBA. They just come up with a rule to allow it because it makes the league more interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've talked about how much we like the bird rule. I mean, I wouldn't hate that, but... It's like, hey, here's the Carlson rule. It's like, yeah, you can go over the cap if it's a player who's won a Norris before. <laughs> or something like that. But what do you think of the signing? Eight years, 11 million, like... It's a risk. It's obviously a risk with the ankle injury, but when you have a guy who, over the last five years, has undoubtedly been the best defenseman in the NHL, I mean, can you even put anyone in that tier? Maybe Drew Doughty? I don't maybe even Mar- think you could maybe Mark Giordano. Nope, I don't think he's because he's really only had one good year. I think if maybe Hedman or Subban. I was going to say Victor Hedman has been steadily very good. Um, Brent Burns has he was very good. He wasn't as good as I would have liked this year. 
Um, Which is weird because he had a great offensive season, and some of the great. some of the defensive numbers on Burns this season were strangely good. He had a weird season that I don't think anyone really expected. Exactly. So I think Carlson's been, when healthy, the most consistently good defenseman in the NHL. And he's... even look in the playoffs, when he was playing on one leg, I thought he was San Jose's best player. So, Yeah, on one leg, no less. <laughs> my point is that I think when you're taking a risk, you feel comfortable taking it on a guy who, when healthy, is the best in the world at what he does. And kind of like the Kawhi Leonard trade, even though it was just a one-year trade as opposed to this, which is an eight-year commitment, there was a lot of risk associated with it. The reason the Raptors were willing to take it is because when healthy... He was a top three to top five player in the world. Eric Carlson, I think you can make a very similar argument with. I mean, after McDavid, after, I don't know, the top three players in the world. Let's say McDavid, McKinnon, Kucherov. Are those the top three? Crosby. Yeah. After those four, one healthy. Is Carlson number five? I think mm, he's up there. Yeah, he's in the top ten, I think. Oh, he's absolutely in the top ten. Yeah, so my point is, when you have a top ten player in the world, when healthy... I feel comfortable taking a risk on him. I feel like the, the dollar number makes sense. It's, it makes him the highest paid defenseman in the NHL, but he could have easily gotten more in the open market. And yeah, the tail end of that contract probably doesn't look great. Maybe he only has a couple more years of dynamic Eric Carlson-ness in him. But the Sharks know that. The Sharks roster is designed entirely around the next year or two. So for them, I think it makes a ton of sense. And then if the back half of the contract doesn't look so great... I think you accept that risk when you consider where San Jose is. Now, if a team that's completely starting fresh was taking this contract, like, say, I don't know, a Buffalo Sabres, maybe it doesn't look as great because that cap space in years four, five, six, and seven, eight, those might really matter. For San Jose, they don't matter as much, and you really, really want to win now, and you can deal with some cap constraints down the line. I really like this deal for San Jose. I like it for Carlson. I think it makes sense. So at the end of the day, I don't really have any problems with it. See, I think, like... He will be absolutely worth this money for at least the first four years of his contract. I think years three and four are a stretch depending on injuries. Again, this yeah, all comes back to injury risk. When it's an eight-year contract and you're telling me that over half of this contract he's not going to be worth what I'm paying him, that's a little bit concerning for me. Now, at the end of the day, this is the cost of doing business. So no team is going to get him unless they sign him for eight years at a high number dollar. So San Jose knew that. They probably got him for below what he would have got on the market. But I mean, just when I sit back and I look at it, I don't know that I want to be paying someone that percentage of my cap when I don't know if he's going to be worth it for even half of the contract. And like, I, if they win next year or the year after, then realistically it doesn't matter because you got a cup. It's kind of like the Anthony Davis trade. It's like, ooh, that was a lot to give up. But like, if LA wins the NBA championship in the next year or two, no one's going to care. Exactly, but I just think that with the way his Achilles is, and he's got a lot of issues with his just lower body, um, and a lot of it wouldn't shock me if it stemmed from the Achilles, because that has a tendency to just have an effect on everything. Um, that's not good when you factor in age curves and, and the body and how it sort of breaks down. At it's, the same time, a little age, concerning. Curves, age curves at the extreme end of the spectrum when it comes to hyper-elite pro-athletes they tend not to age the same way that players at, at you know at, on the second or third line. Yeah, but level he's do. got the injury, and that's what like your body ages at a different pace when you have a significant, significant injury. Right. The reason Patrick Marlowe has been able to play as long as he has, and same with Chair, is they haven't really had that type of injury. 
right? Patrick Marlowe's played almost a thousand games. I mean, Marlowe hasn't missed a game in the last nine years. Like he's had like, uh, you know, some, some bruises here, been banged up there, but he's never had a severe injury in the last decade, basically. Exactly. So when I, when I look at it, when you've got injuries like that, it's definitely a concern, which is kind of why I'm wondering by the time you get into the later points of this contract, if he's hurting, does LTIR sort of play a factor does has san jose factor that in and we can probably stash him on ltir if he's hurt and not playing for us in the same way that the ducks have basically done with kessler but what's funny is that i don't think this the sharks really care about that and i'm of the argument that they shouldn't i feel like they're clearly at the end of their contending window and they're trying to stretch it out as long as they possibly can and for them i think this move makes a lot of sense and i would completely i'd do the exact same thing if i were in their shoes yeah like i think it does make a lot of sense in the short term, I just, long term, I mean, I think everyone knows by now, I'm not a fan of the eight-year contract. I mean, I don't think the NHL should allow contracts more than five years. In the NBA, the max is four years, I believe. So. Yeah. Or maybe just, fifth year. You can get a fifth year if you're with the same team since they drafted you. You are legitimately giving teams the opportunity to make mistakes by signing these long-term deals. Take it away. And that's why we joked when they first brought in the eight-year minimum, it was to help save NHL teams from themselves. Now you're of, you're the, of the uh, opinion that they should bring in a four- or five-year contract to help save GMs from themselves. Whereas me, like I tend to think, hey, why should we cap this at all? Shouldn't we have a free market where you're forced to actually make smart decisions? But I, I would, know, but I just think MLB it promotes works. player movement too, right? If you have a four- or five-year kind of window, and then that's a good point. You're looking at some other stuff and that's probably why you don't see league max deals which we'll get into later because no one is signing a league max deal for eight years that would be insane well mcdavid should have but that's another conversation okay well again also generational talent well yeah but the fact that they didn't sign the max just is completely ridiculous to me but that's again another conversation for another day um (laughs) all right so we'll go to another defenseman and jacob truba in that trade um, Can we I even call it a trade when the compensation is less than it would have been for uh, an offer sheet? I ugh. Well, I mean, when you look at the Ollie Mata trade earlier in the week, I saw that I was like, um, okay. But then the Truba trade, there's a kind of a reason why I don't have as big of a problem with the trade as... I think a lot of people do, though. Again, I almost feel guilty calling it a trade because New York gave up so little for him. They gave up, what, the 20th overall pick? And Neil Pionk, who, Neil Pionk, I can't pronounce it, but defenseman who many people are claiming that they've known and they've followed for a long time, and he's always a good puck-moving defenseman. But you look at the team's numbers when he's on the ice, and they're atrocious. And maybe that's just a product of being on a really bad team. And I know when you look at the Randy Carlisle years in Toronto, everyone did much better when they were outside of that system than when they were inside it. But the fact that you're getting what I think is a bottom-pairing defenseman on a cup contender and a 20th overall pick for a top 30 defenseman in the world is safe to say. And Jacob Truba, uh, top 40? Top 40. Top 40. So maybe number one, he can be the number one defender on a cup contender because he was on Winnipeg. Maybe he's better off as a number two on a cup contender, but a hell of a defenseman, a top pairing right-handed defenseman right at that age you want. And they gave up very little for him. Again, the reason is because he's been saying for years that he wants to play in New York. He's wanted to play for this team for a long time. And, and sim- here's the thing is I don't have a problem now that it's come out with his trade request because he came out and said... My fiance is in 
medical school. She can't do her placement in Canada, which anyone who knows the rules knows that that's true. And so my career is just as important as hers. And to me, that shows me, A, that is a good human being. And B, you know what? Winnipeg kind of sat back and said, he's not asking out of Winnipeg because he doesn't like it here. He's asking because it legitimately affects his life. If that was the case, though, wouldn't they have traded him a few years ago when his value was actually a bit higher versus now when they get absolutely nothing for him? I, but even back then when he was in RFA, there you still weren't going to get a whole lot for him because he was he had them leveraged and he's a UFA next year. He's eligible for arbitration. And so he Mark stoned his way out of a situation in a really smart way in ways that we normally don't see players actually take some leverage and show some empowerment. Him and Mark Stone these last two years have basically forced themselves into situations that they want. And I kind of like that. As a Yeah, I don't have sports. a problem with it. Now, I mean, the return is not all that great. Return's um, almost non-existent when you consider the quality of player. Well, it depends because you could get, like, I of the belief that this is a really good draft. I think Winnipeg could get a solid, solid player at 20, depending on how the draft shakes out. Um, and when you consider that realistically they probably weren't going to be able to sign Truba anyways because of their cap constraints I don't have as big of a problem with it as most people do is it not great value of course it's not great value but I think even the fact that they got the first round pick when the Rangers knew they were leveraged to the hill is so my bigger question is at what point were they not leveraged to the hill last year two years ago three years ago because at that point you actually had a chance to trade Truba for something of significant value where you might not get a fair return, but you get something close to a fair return. And they waited, they waited until they had absolutely no leverage, and they traded a star player in the prime of his career for, a what, a tenth of what he's worth? A fifth of what he's worth? It's just, from an asset management perspective... I thought Winnipeg really dropped the ball in this scenario. If we consider the last four years of Truba's career, at any point you could have traded him in there and you chose to the last possible second to do it and get absolutely nothing for him. I think that's very poor asset management as a general manager and I I just don't get it at all. Makes well, no I sense think, to me. I think Jeff Corden, we need to give some credit to him. When you look at what he has shipped out and what he's gotten back... He has turned that franchise around in a real hurry. They also kind of have the L.A. Lakers-ness of people want to come play for us. Adam Fox, who wasn't even drafted by us and in a redraft would go in the first round, that guy's basically announcing that he's coming to our team. And Jacob Truba's doing the same thing a few years before he hits free agency. So you have an unfair competitive advantage on other teams because people want to come to your team. But when you look at the fact that they snapped their fingers a year and a half ago and said that we're going to rebuild... I think if you look at the assets they've accumulated in the cap space and all that since they decided to rebuild. Oh, it's a course in asset Tip of the hat. It, that's like an A plus on, on how you could have gone from what really looked like a brutal situation. They hadn't had a first round pick in years and they were kind of stuck in mediocrity. And it was looking like, man, like five years from now, this Rangers team is going to be stuck. And he's got them in a situation where they're headed on the right path and there's an upwards trajectory. Winning the draft lot or at least winning the second overall pick in Capocaco is going to help them incredibly well. They've made some great draft decisions in the last few years. This is a team on the upswing, and, and you can't give him enough credit, but you have to admit that some of it, or maybe not half of it, but like a, a decent chunk of it is because they're the New York Rangers, and you couldn't just walk in to, say, the Arizona Coyotes or the Minnesota Wild and have a similar type of impact. But because... then why can't Montreal turn it around? 
Because you think there are players who really want to play for the Montreal Canadiens? That's fair. Okay, so now we're looking at we're looking at the Rangers. And they've got Truba. They're going to sign him. He wants to be there. What's a realistic projection for him next year? Like, what do you see him? He's going to run their power play. That I have no doubt about. Oh, what you're going to you ask me like how many points he puts up? Even strength, power play. Where do you see him fitting in? You know what's funny is I think we've talked about this in the past, how we don't really care about point production for defensemen, especially at five on five. To us, that's just like a something that doesn't really impact the team's chances of winning, the team's chances of scoring or preventing a goal. So who no, really cares? No, I care about the what the D's like in transition. Exactly. And I care when Truba's on the ice, he's going to be facing tough competition. He probably isn't going to have the greatest partner in the world. Is he able to hold his team above water at 5-on-5 five five in some extremely difficult minutes? And I think he will be able to. I think he's proven that he's able to do that. Hell, you look at some of his, uh, his those times in Winnipeg. He was on a line with Mark Stewart. <laughs> and it was just like, oof, like yeah, Mark Stewart shouldn't great. be in the NHL anymore. And he was able to drag him to like 50% possession, scoring chances, uh, goals. And then when he plays with a really good defense partner, a left-handed guy, whether it's a Morrissey or a Tobias Enstrom, he dominated play at 5-5. Five and five, And that's what you want to see. So I think that he's going to be an excellent top-pairing defenseman, a right-handed defenseman. I don't really care as much about his power play numbers because that's typically that typically hasn't been what he does as a player in Winnipeg. You know, Bufflin was always the power play quarterback. I, I don't really care so much about his offensive numbers. I care more about is he driving the bus at five on five on a team that desperately needs it on the back end, and I think he does, and I think that's why they're going to pay for him because he's a top pairing right handed defenseman who can drive results, and those guys are really hard to come by in the modern day. So I think New York's going to be very happy with the player they get. Oh my God, absolutely. I think he's not only that, he's going to be happy playing there. And when you're happy in a situation, whether you're a player or a coach or really anybody in the world, you're going to perform better because you actually want to be there, right? So I think that you'll see an uptick there. And I also think that he's going to be in a a very good spot where there's a lot of young talent there. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of young talent in Winnipeg too, or just a lot of talent in general. So that really isn't going to change a whole lot. But now he's in a he's in a better environment for him, and I think that that can't get overlooked. Yeah, New York's going to be, uh, like, you know, surprisingly one of the top five teams I'm interested in watching next year, just with all the young, dynamic talent they have. I think they'll I'm- make the playoffs. If Hank plays well, I think they'll make the playoffs. All right, I'm if, I'm going to go league average goaltending. Like I don't know what Henrik Lundqvist is at this point in his career, but if if New York gets league average goaltending, I mean, let's go through some of the young talent they're going to have on that roster. I mean, Capo Caco isn't Leas nothing. Anderson, Philip Edel, they still have Zabanajad. I'm really interested in the the Russian player they picked last year. Kravtsov. Yes, Vitali oh. Kravtsov. Ooh, I love him. I really like him. Fast puck moving defenseman in Nils Lundqvist, who I'm a big fan of. Not sure if he makes an impact next year, maybe two years from now, but. The pipeline in New York is strong. They, it, it's you know at the at the top end they have Capocaco, they have some other nice young pieces there, and now you throw in Jacob Truba as your top pairing defenseman for the next five or six years. I really like what they're doing there, and it's funny. Like the the only big question mark is going to be goaltending, I guess, in the future after Henrik Lundqvist eventually falls off. But but they've got I, Georgiev and Chestjorkin. Okay, you only know Georgiev's name because he had a ridiculous two games against the Leafs this year. He was no, like but what nine, I'm saying is it's not goal. like they're totally thin. <laughs> I don't think Georgiev's a starter, and I don't think the other guy is either. So. I don't think either of them are starters, but I think they're both capable of doing the fifty fifty thing. 
you know what? New York's going to be so fun. Even if they don't make the playoffs, they're just going to be interesting. And I like that. I like that a team that I haven't cared about for the last two or three seasons is all of a sudden on the upswing and extremely entertaining. Kind of reminds me of, you know, Carolina. It's just, it's fun when a team goes from being garbage to all of a sudden elite young talent comes in and you want to watch them. It's kind of like, you know, the Leafs a couple of years ago. Okay, so I have a question. If the Rangers are going to be fun to watch, what are the Flyers going to be? Um, so here's the thing. It's that, like, I really like Sean Couturier. I really like... Uh, Claude Giroux. Yeah. They, they have some players Konechny. that I like. Um, uh, Goss Despair may or may not be on the team next year. We'll find out. Um, Travis Sanheim. Uh, Carter Hart. Uh, I did like Radko Gudis, but I also like Matt Niskanen. I feel like people are, are saying that they definitively lost that trade when... I don't know. I think both players are good at separate things, and I think both teams will be somewhat happy with the player they get. It's just, I don't understand the trade that they made for Justin Braun in the least, and I think that's what it comes down to for me. Is like, wow, you just kind of gave up a whole bunch of assets for a guy who I think is like a number six defenseman, and maybe a number five. I would like to point out that Radko Gudis and Tom Wilson are now on the same team, which immediately makes them appointment viewing for player safety. Especially in the playoffs, can you imagine when, when they're getting away with less and you have both Tom Wilson and Radko Gudis on the same team? It's funny, we joke about this, but like that might be a legitimate market inefficiency because now yeah. you have like the two craziest guys in the league who get away with a stupid amount, both on the same team in the playoffs. Now they just need to trade for, trade for Brad Marchand. And Corey and, Perry. Yeah, and oh my god, if they sign Corey Perry. <laughs> they're just trying to like remake the Bash Brothers from the Mighty Ducks. Like all those scenes, we're going to see them again. But why did Philly retain salary on the Gudis deal? Like I thought that Washington would have had to retain because Niskanen's deal is longer. It's for more money. I would, I mean, Evolving Wild has their RAPM charts, which are some of my favorite charts. And... Niskanen was really good in 16-17, but he's sharply declined since, and Gudis has been better every year, and he's still a positive player, so I've just, like... And Gudis is such a, an interesting case. Gudis is one of those guys who's been surprisingly sheltered because they don't play him higher up in the lineup, and I don't know why when you're playing guys like Andrew McDonald higher in the lineup, or, you know, some of the guys, Robert Hag higher in the lineup. I'm like... Gudis is clearly better than these guys. Why don't you play him with a Goss Despair or play him with a Provorov? Because that will definitely provide better 5-on-5 five five results, but we've never really seen it. The funny thing about Gudis is that regardless of who he plays with, the team does better when he's on the ice. When him and Michael Delzato are on the third pairing, that team's dominating. And it's like, well, that probably shouldn't be the case. Michael Delzato isn't that great, but when, du- when Gudis is on the ice, you dominate. So maybe moving him up into a top-four role, he still does really well there. Maybe Niskanen, in a second-pairing role where he's not facing as much tough competition, maybe he's playing with a puck mover and Goss to spare, maybe it works out really well. I don't know. This might be a a trade that works out well for both teams. Right. There's potential there that it works out for both teams. Plus, you have to remember that Niskanen, how many more years does he have left on his deal? I want to say three. And Gudis is a one-year rental. So... The assumption Which is, is why that, I was kind of like, why are they retaining? Oh, one more year. Sorry, this year and then one more in Niskanen. So Niskanen's at two more years, whereas Gudis is at one more year. Yeah, so that makes even less sense as to why they retain. But I think in terms of defensemen, the one thing that concerns me about both the Niskanen and Braun trades is Philly has a lot of really good young defensemen, and their new coach is known for not playing his young players very much. And by acquiring these two, you're giving him a reason to not play his young players. 
And we're, I guess we're referring to Travis Sanheim as the big one there? Uh, yeah. And They've got a couple like, others. Like They have like Philip Myers still. They have a couple other interesting guys. But Sanheim, I think if everything goes right, could be a top-pairing defenseman. But and that's what I'm saying. Provorov is a top pairing defenseman. That part he's is an interesting one. Yeah, like they got to get him signed. But I think if Gostas Bear is even there, if Sanheim is there, and Philip Myers, and even a guy like Robert Hogg, like I think they're gonna suffer a little bit because Alain Vigneault is known for not playing his younger players. Like he's can known I, for it. Can I say something? Mm-hmm. Justin Braun is bad. Uh, yeah, he's one of the worst offensive D in, like, goals for, expected goals for, and Corsi for, for th- the last three seasons. And I, I wouldn't care right. about that if he was, like, Nicholas Jalmerson defensively, you know? Like, I, I wouldn't. It's just, I think his defensive value is getting overrated here. I think we're assuming that, oh, he played really tough shutdown minutes. He also played funny. with Vlasic. And he also did very poorly in those minutes. Look at his numbers over the last three years. Gets brutally outshot, outchanced, and outscored when he's on the ice over the last three seasons. Yes, you, you played tough minutes, and you did that thing, but you did it poorly. And it's funny, if I do something and I do it poorly, do I get to put on my resume that I did it? Because I did it so terribly that my team had to trade me and go find someone else to do it who could actually do it. Like, I don't so think that I should I was looking say. at Micah McCurdy's, like, with or without you charts and for everyone saying oh Vlasic Braun is a great pairing um they were to be fair they were back in the day Mark Edward Vlasic is a significantly better defenseman by the numbers without Braun yeah and like you play Vlasic with Burns or you play Vlasic with Carlson all of a sudden Vlasic does really well you play Vlasic with Braun they get destroyed and you can say, oh, it's a quality of competition thing. Well, you, you can. Vlasic and Carlson played tough minutes earlier in the year, and they did really well. You, you know, Vlasic and Braun play together tough minutes. It's been a disaster these last three seasons. Before that, those two actually did do very well together against tough minutes, but this is a bit of an aging thing, both when it comes to Braun and Vlasic. Neither player are what they were a few years ago. And unfortunately, Braun's fallen off of a cliff. So just because he play, played tough Philly minutes... If plays Braun in the bottom pairing role, and they actually do play let's say, Travis Sandheim higher up in the lineup. I think he's a, still a serviceable right-handed third-pairing defenseman, right? Like, you okay, can't third tell me pair, Justin Braun I'm not at second Roman pairing Polak. I, think, I thought you were going to say second-pairing, and I'm not there yet. But third-pairing, I agree. Right, like, I don't think he's as bad as Roman Polak is. or Exactly. But it's one of those interesting things. When we hear about a player who really struggled in tough minutes, we hear, oh, yeah, but they played tough minutes. But if you don't do well in those minutes, to me, I don't really care what the difficulty was because... What can you do well in? Can you do well in second pairing minutes? Can you do well in third pairing minutes? Because you obviously can't do well in first pairing minutes. And it's kind of that Andrew McDonald, Nikita Zaitsev, Rasmus Ristolainen problem where we defend them for their usage, but then they never thrive in that situation. So we never really know, okay, well, crap, if you can't do that, what can you do? And then it turns out you can't even be a second pairing defenseman. All right, let's try them on the third pairing. It turns out Dion Phaneuf can't even do well on a third pairing. Well, crap, maybe he's just not an NHLer anymore. And I feel like that's maybe where I'm with Braun like Braun clearly can't do it on the first pairing he can't do it on the second pairing I think he might be able to do it on the third pairing but for fun let's say he can't you just gave up assets for a guy who probably shouldn't even be an NHL player I think that's a problem yeah and I do I would like I think he can be serviceable on a third pairing role my fear is what happens to Braun is also what happened with Ron Hainsey the last few years in which Vino just decides he's gonna play him 17, 18 minutes a night. Side and note, how does Vigneault get the biggest contract of the offseason when it comes to coaches? 
Oh, I think that Craig Berube probably has to be creeping into at least that neighborhood when he okay. is. But why is Vigno in? The, why is Vigno in the top three? <laughs> yeah, that's the whole experience thing. Um, and I heard I can't remember who said this, but they were referring. I it was to basketball because they were talking about Nick Nurse. They were referring to listen. If you've been fired twice. You're probably not a very good coach. So what is with the recycling? Why isn't there no new blood? Why is a guy like Ricard Gronberg not getting a chance? Why are we not bringing up more guys from the AHL? Like Sheldon That team's Keith? really smart assistant, maybe, who had lots of innovative ideas. Like, no, 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 no. Trust me. This guy did really well for Vancouver in 2010. He's the guy we want. Meanwhile, you look at his track record since then, and it's like, why do we actually want this guy again? <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of... It was a great point being made about basketball, but it certainly applies to hockey and the fact that like coaches get hired and fired four, five, six times and there's no new ideas. Like it's the same brain. Yes, they might evolve, but I would rather have new blood. Like it just seems to make a whole lot more sense to me, doesn't it? It's the two hundred hockey men, like, you know, argument of just the revolving door of the same ideas, and it's a problem that baseball had for a long time. It's a problem that a lot of these sports had for a long time. I feel like the NBA's been a lot more open to new ideas lately. Well it's just uh, it's the NBA the NBA is more diverse. Yeah. Right. The it's NBA just... is the league that I want the NHL to be. Hockey's my favorite sport by far, but I love the NBA so much, man. Like the NBA is an infinitely better league than the NHL, which is terrible league. So <laughs> Now that we've talked about the trades that Philly made, let's talk about the signing they made. All right, so what did they give up to acquire Hayes? Kevin Hayes, for anyone who doesn't know, second-line center for the Rangers for the last few years and then for the Winnipeg Jets heading into their playoff run. I think I a really... fifth-round pick. Okay, so that's... Wait, no, no, no. Didn't they give up a first-round pick to acquire... Oh, wait, no, the, nope. the Flyers. The Flyers gave up like a low pick to have the rights to talk to him before free agency. Yeah, exactly. So they just acquired his rights. Okay. But that did help them secure the signing, so it, it does have value. If Hayes signed a $6 million contract for, let's say, six years, what would your thoughts on that contract have been? Because I feel like we would have liked it. Yeah, like, I, I, don't, I don't think I really would have had a problem with it. But $7.14 million a year seems to be, like, a lot of money. Now, let's say he signed that contract, a six-year contract, $6 million, three years ago. And now we take the cap hit percentage and apply it to this year. All of a sudden, 7.1 seems too high, but like, you know, six and a half wouldn't have seemed so crazy. I think this is the new market for second line centers. I just feel like with the cap going up, this is, you know, seven is the new six and a half. Six and a half was the new six. Here's my problem with this. He's, when you're looking at second line centers, I expect more than 20 goals out of my second line center. Like, yeah, I but what do. if your second line center is playing on the New York Rangers for the last few years? And also, what if he's an assist machine? Like, what if goals aren't what he does? Okay, but he's played over 70 games in each year that he's played. And he has, like, he's 0.6 points per game. That's not good enough, for me at least. And especially okay, when you consider but, that the, the contract is long and he's 27. He turned 27 in May. So it's he's going to start going downwards. Like, players don't get better at 27. Um, I think it's a concern. Like, I think the contract will be good for the first two or three years. 
But I don't think that Philly had to go that long. They probably didn't, but I feel like there are better ways to evaluate players than just points. And I feel like Kevin Hayes is a good example of a guy who over the last couple of years, especially this most recent season, was a very good play driver. And if you have a guy who's a very good play driver, his main skill is his passing ability, and he's been on a terrible team for the last few years. And you imagine if we surround you with some better talent and put you on the power play for once, because Alain Vigneault hated you and thought you were a fourth line center who never deserved power play time. Hey, guess what? When we look at your per 60 numbers and we look at your play driving ability and we forecast you being on our top power play unit, we think that your value is going to be very high for the next six years and we don't want you to hit the open market. We want to sign you right now to that $7 million contract because we think you're going to be worth it for the next few years. It might not be a great contract. Maybe $6.5 million would have been better, but I really like Kevin Hayes as a player. And I think when you're looking at a player of that ilk, if they hit the open market... I think they're going to get that easily from another team because I just think that's where the league is headed. They want to pay first and second line centers a lot of money. You know, top pairing defensemen a lot of money. These are hard pieces to come by. You know, second and third line winger, those grow on trees. But filling your second line center spot is so important today when you're trying to win a cup that I, I think that that's just the, the new market for a second line center. It used to be $6 million, then the cap went up, and it's $6.5 million. Now the cap's gone up again, and now it's $7 million. See, and that's, I agree with you. I just don't know that he's a second-line center, is my I, thing. I guess that's where we disagree. I think on a cup contender, you're happy with Kevin Hayes on your second line. Kind of like an Azim Kadri, but... But Nazem Kadri is not on the second line in Toronto. Yeah, but he could be on the second line of a cup and, contender it, if they had look, elite defense. Go look at who's won the cup. Like, this past year, Boston, you have... David Bergeron Krejci? and David Krejci. But, okay, but Bergeron's getting the matchups, right? But my, my point more is that Kevin Hayes is better than David Krejci. Yes, I would say that. But then go look at Washington. Kuznetsov Backstrom. You, he mm. is not even close to either of those. Mm. Oh Maybe my god, not no. quite. Ian, come not on. quite. No, he's not up there. <laughs> All right, I'm trying to think of more comparables. St. Louis Blues, who was their second line center? Uh, I could not even tell Kevin you. Kevin Hayes would be better than him, whoever Probably, he is. Probably, yeah. Yep. Um, um, okay. Pittsburgh, my, my point more Pittsburgh so is... Pittsburgh has Malkin Crosby. To be fair, Pittsburgh is, yeah, yeah, kind of the... And Toronto, no, they weren't up there. But Carolina's second-line center? I think Kevin Hayes is better than uh, Carolina's second-line center. You think he's better than Ajo? No, Ajo's their first-line center. Okay, so you think, think he's better than Stahl? Jordan Stahl. I think Jordan Stahl's so terrible offensively that it takes away from all the good he does defensively to the point where he might not be as good as his RAPM says it is or his, you know, Corsi numbers say he is. I so still here's think Eric Stahl is a phenomenal thing is Philly player. already has their stalwart. Like, Sean Couturier should be up for the Selkie every year moving forward, in my honestly. opinion. He's incredible. He is literally the new generation of Bergeron. Yep. Like in him, my opinion. Ryan O'Reilly, yeah, they're that tier. They... So they already have their guy who can shut down in the same way that Bergeron does. They need a guy who can score, and Kevin Hayes just is not that guy. But he can pass. Two guys who can score. I just and are you thinking know. Travis Konechny can be that guy who can score? Are you thinking that Voracek and Giroux are still gonna score? I mean, on the power play, they obviously are. That's what they do. Yeah, but they're gonna <laughs> play on the top line anyways. Yeah, and Giroux's a winger now at this point in his career, which is why I think the Hayes signing makes sense for them. So. Yeah, I just don't think they needed to go that long. Like, I think the contract will have value for, the like, the first three or four years. I just, I don't know that it needed to be that long. I think it's interesting how, how strongly we disagree on Kevin Hayes. I really like him as a player, but I guess we'll have to see how this, how this pays off. Because, again, 
points aren't my favorite way of evaluating a player. And if you look at him this past year, you add up his Rangers and his Jets point totals. He had, what, 54 points in 71 games. That's like a 60-point pace. That's not bad in the modern day with good play-driving numbers. If you can here's, consistently... Like, here's you, one, though. Like His cap-friendly had his comparables as Brock Nelson and Travis Zajac. I think, I, th- I think he's better than those players, though. I would argue that Travis Ajak was a better hockey player when he signed that contract. He's definitely not now, but... But Kevin Hayes is much younger than those players. He's, he's 27 right now, so I feel, I feel like you're getting a few good years out of him for sure. Yes, but I would also like to bring up the fact that um, everyone in this town wants to scream about William Nylander being overpaid, yet in the four seasons he's played, he's got 20 goals. He has point... Like, he's .68 points per game versus Hayes at .6. And he's four years younger. And he's a play-driving machine at 5-on-5. Five five. He transitions the puck incredibly well. Like, when Matthews plays with him without Nylander, the, the, di- the difference is pretty stark. Nylander drives play at 5-on-5. Right, five and, five. And, and Nylander's four years younger. So, like... This is more the point of players who are 22 years old and younger. Like, they get screwed over. Are worth more. Like, they're, they are worth more, but not on the market for some reason. And they should be. And I feel like guys like Marner and company are trying to correct that right now. Matthews, Eichel, they're trying to But, like, to even Braden Point. For... That guy's a $10 million player. Aho, like, I, I'd argue that both Point and Aho, if we're just talking raw value, are worth more than $11 million. Uh-huh. But probably mm-hmm. signed for nine or fewer. Yep. You know? And it's just the, it's frustrating. Should we talk about Mitch Marner or should we talk about something else? I don't think we should actually <laughs> talk about Mitch Marner at all because I think that there's been enough talking about Mitch Marner over the past 24 hours. And I think that there will be enough talk about Mitch Marner over the next week and a half to two weeks that we don't really need that to contribute to you'll get that content it. elsewhere and you don't need to get it here. So we'll, we'll talk about happier stuff like the Corey Perry bio. Yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah, uh, just as a hockey fan in general, even like as a hockey writer, it's interesting, right? It makes the offseason more interesting. Uh, he was a player that you would have never traded for, even if they retained half his salary. That's just not a contract you can take on. But now that he's been bought out and is a free agent, and you could sign him for like a million or two million, I don't know if you have to go as high as three million or something, but whatever, you're, you're, you're much more likely to sign this player now, and he has value to a lot of teams in the league. We were talking before the podcast, how many guys are there in the league who have that Brad Marchand, Tom Wilson-ness in them to really dictate the outcome of a playoff series, or maybe not dictate the outcome of a playoff series, but really have an impact on a playoff series without doing anything hockey-related, and then also provide some strong offensive value, you know, be able to pitch in 20-plus goals. There aren't many of them now, you know? Usually the guys who fit the Tom Wilson, like, ilk are fourth-line grinders who aren't very good at hockey, you know? But this is a guy who still has a bit of solid hockey left in him, especially if you can play him on a, on a line with two guys who can transition the puck and make passes so that all he really needs to do is go to the front of the net and make life living hell for the other team. It's funny. Exactly. I hate Corey Perry. I can't stand him. But you want him on your team. He's a good player. Just depends on the price, obviously. Oh, I would 100% want him on my team. He adds an element that I think you need. Now, you're not going to want him on your team for like, you know, three years at $4 million or whatever. No. But on a one-year deal, whether it's like, I don't know, $2 million or something like that. That's, that's Even a, a two-year deal at $2.5 million. Are you telling me that you wouldn't rather have Corey Perry than someone like a Connor Brown? 
Oh, <laughs> that's a very, I would rather have Corey It's a fantastic point. But then again, I wouldn't want Connor Brown at the money he's making. I'd rather trade him out for a player on an entry-level deal like a Trevor Moore or something. But that's more capology for you. Uh, when it comes but to, but I do think I think Corey Perry has significant value, especially now that he's been bought out, and you can sign him to a lesser contract. I think like that there Mikhail will be Grabowski. a lot of suitors. Remember when Mikel Grabowski got bought out by the Leafs, and then he was able to sign like a one million dollar like, deal in Washington or whatever? It's like, yeah, you love a player on that contract, and it's like whatever Perry signs this next contract for, at least for the first year, you're really gonna like it, and. I don't know. I feel like whether it's a team like the the Leafs or, or pick a team, I don't know. The Nashville Predators need some help on the power play. There's a guy who can help you out on the power play. Uh, there are a lot of teams where Corey Perry can have a ton of value on a short-term deal. And I know that there are some people saying, oh, you know, he's kind of old, he's kind of done, he has a lot of injuries. But there's a lot of uh, evidence that shows that when he's healthy and playing like the back half of a season when he's healthy, still a very effective offensive player, can score goals, and those things that are hard to measure, like being Corey Perry and pissing off the other team, as much as us nerds like to say, like, oh, that's that's pretty overrated, and I'd argue it is overrated, but it has value, and he can do it. And I think that a lot well, of he teams could easily out piss off Brad Marchand. Like I, for what it's worth, I think he's the best agitator like in a playoff series. Seven league. games of Corey Perry versus Brad Marchand. I think he's the best agitator in the league because he's just he. When you see some of the garbage that he gets away with, it is And he can combine that into effectiveness because then the guy turns around and punches him, isn't looking at the puck, and he scores an easy goal. And it's like, well, crap, this guy has taken being an asshole and used it to make him a better hockey player, and it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So I'll be interested to see where he kind of uh, ends up. Any predictions on that one? Whew. Can you give me like a, a top three or top five of people who have been reportedly interested? Because I feel like it's such a tough one to assess. Well, I feel like everyone's interested. <laughs> the, the inner bias in me says Toronto Maple Leafs. You know, he'll, he'll be their Radko Gudis since they couldn't get Radko Gudis. I could see him in Montreal. Ooh, yeah, I could see that. I could Honestly, you could list one of any, like, I don't know, 20 or 30 teams that think they have a chance of making the playoffs next year. And I'm like, yeah, Corey Perry you helps know who them. would be great? He could ride shotgun with McDavid. I don't think he can keep up with McDavid, but I don't know. What if you just told him, like, you're standing in front of the net? He can skate faster than Lucic. That's a good point. But then again, like, that's a pretty low bar. (laughs) Okay, but if you sign him on, like, a one- or two-year deal like Chase on... There's not really any risk associated. Chase on scored what? Like, did Chase on get 30 goals this year? (laughs) If it works, then you've got something, right? Sorry, Chase on only had... Chase on only had 22 goals this year. It just felt like 30 because no one else on the Oilers was scoring this year. Oh, God. That's yikes. But I think with Perry, it's kind of like one of those things where with Lucic, we already knew that he wasn't a goal scorer. He was there to kind of like make room. With Perry, he's a goal scorer. Like he might not be as fast as he used to be, but your hands, like his hands are still going to be his hands, right? In front of the net. Now, uh, I had Theo reach out to me. Theo, the guy who never joins me for any of my podcasts. It's become a running joke at this point. But he was asking me, Ian, you're a smart guy. Can you explain to me why Corey Perry and Dion Phaneuf got bought out? And I think it's actually a pretty good question because, you know, with a lot of guys, a lot of the times it makes sense waiting out the deal instead of actually buying it out. We saw Toronto do that when they took on a few bad contracts from Ottawa in the Dion Phaneuf deal. They realized, they're like, wow, this Dion Phaneuf deal 
it's going to be pretty brutal to buy out. So how about we just trade him for a few contracts that expire in two years and we'll just wait them out because it almost always makes more sense to wait something out than to buy it out. Why did it make more sense for Anaheim to buy out Corey Perry? Why did it make more sense for LA to buy out Dion Phaneuf? Because I'd argue that a lot of the times that isn't the best way to do things. That's an interesting first mailbag question. Holy. I was going to say, it's like layered, right? It's like, hmm, like maybe for some teams it does make sense to buy out, but for other teams it doesn't make sense to buy out. I think given where the Ducks are um, and where the Kings are, they kind of had to, didn't they? Like, you have to be able to, not only if you don't buy Phaneuf and Perry out, not only are their full cap, uh, hits on the cap, but it's also roster spots, right? You can't bring up a young player if those players in the lineup. So think a guy like Sam Steele or Cole Sherwood would probably not get their opportunity if Corey Perry was was there, right? Or next year, let's say LA happens to take Bowen Byram. He might not get a chance if Phaneuf's taking up a roster spot. You know what I mean? But here's the thing with Anaheim. Do you see them as a legitimate contender in the next um, two seasons? No. Okay, no. then they should have just waited out the Corey Perry buyout. Yeah, that one... Because his contract would be up in two seasons. And I, now instead, they the have... The Perry buyout made less sense to me than the FNUF one did. Okay, because if Anaheim doesn't see themselves as a legitimate contender in the next two years... Perry's deal will has two more years, 2019-20, which is next season. That's one year. And then 2020-2021. In the summer of 2021, they're no longer due any more money to him, and they would have just been off scot-free. Instead, they bought him out, and they owe 2.6 to the cap this year, 6.6 million to the cap next year, and then still two more years at 2 million each. So when they could have got out of the deal in 2021 without having to really pay anything if they just waited it out, they'd be fine. But instead, they're buying it out for short-term flexibility, and it's going to cost them $2 million in the 21-22 season and the 22-23 season. Isn't that a bit of short-sightedness when they're probably not going to be a legitimate contender in the next two years? Yeah. it. For me, it's a bit short-sighted. I can see why they did it. Um... But at the same time, like I don't think that they're going to be in a spot where they're going to have contract issues over the next couple years anyways, just because a lot of those young players are not going to need the contract extensions quite yet. Um, All it did, it saved them about $6 million this year and about $2 million the year afterwards. Is that worth what you're going to be paying the two years after that in, in $2 million each year? I don't think I it is. We'll see. I, th- <laughs> I think you just find a way to make this year work with the contracts. But... Eh, they decided to buy him out. I guess they, they're higher on their team than they are. I'm high on John Gibson. I think he can drag them to the playoffs because he's that good, but I'm not too high on the rest of the team around him. Even though I love Andre Kasha, I love Hampus Lindholm, I don't think this is a contender-ready roster as it's currently constructed. Oh, it's definitely not, and I don't think it will be for a few years. And that's why I would feel comfortable waiting out the Perry contract and kind of you know retooling over the next couple of years. But Similar with Phaneuf. Phaneuf um, would be done in 2021. But instead, they bought him out now, gave themselves $5 million of cap flexibility this year, saved themselves $3 million of cap flexibility in the year after. But in order to save that money, they're going to have a buyout for the two following years after that at just a hair over $1 million. So is it worth $1 million in cap space in 21-22 and in 22-23 to get the $5 million in savings this year and the $3 million in savings next year? 
I think that one makes a bit more sense. The Dion Phaneuf one makes a bit more sense, but it's still tough. Oh, I think the Dion Phaneuf one makes sense. Because there's um, less of a, yeah. a hit in those two following years. Whereas in the Corey Perry one, it's not just one million in, in years three and years four. It's two million in years three and years four. And that has, uh, you know, just ask Leafs fans who have to stare at the 1.2 million of Phil Kessel for the next six years. It's like, yeah, guess what? That, that, that matters. That's the difference between signing a player and not signing a player. <laughs> exactly. So, I don't know. I'm just of the opinion that those players shouldn't have been bought out and it would have been smarter to hold on to them long term. But these teams have convinced themselves that they can do something with that cap space in the next two years. And I'm not convinced it'll make a major difference at the end of the day. Alrighty, so speaking of the cap, um, thoughts on the NHL not having the cap number figured out yet? I know why it isn't figured out yet, but I just want to know what your thoughts are on the fact that we're literally at the point now where teams want to be resigning and they don't have the cap number Feels yet. like a bit of a Mickey Mouse league. I'm not sure if any of the other major sports leagues like NBA, NFL, MLB would have that happen. So... I think it's it's frustrating. Can you can you tell us why that's the case, or is that some uh, some private information? No, no, no. It's because of they have to figure out what the fifty fifty split for hockey related revenue is going to be, and they will not have the final numbers. They don't have the final numbers on how much money the league made this season, so how much HRR was actually made until after the Cup final tallies are done. Well. The cup final doesn't end until the damn second week of June. It's a week before the draft, yeah. Two weeks right. before so free agency. <laughs> they're going to have no idea what their budget is until they've done all those numbers. So the really simple solution is because that part is pretty much unavoidable. Like, you can't... You have to set your cap once you know what the revenue is. Otherwise, it's going to be completely off. The simple solution here is the season ends May 31st. Like, cup is handed out before June 1st. Then you have a month to get your act together and figure out what the cap number is going to be before you send teams into the draft not even knowing what they can and cannot do. I have a better solution. We stop paying players in dollars because it doesn't make sense when your salary cap is distributed in percentages. Why aren't we paying players in cap at percentage? Oh, I like that idea. I Personally, I just want a luxury tax. Well, no, That's what I, I want. If we're talking about things we want, I've got a list of about 20 things. And the first thing yeah. on the list is get rid of this damn loser point system. But, you know, oh my God, the NHL is flawed worst. for so many different reasons that we can't even open that, that, like, that, that jar of worms yet. So, But here's the thing. We're frustrated because all oh, players want certainty, yet you're in a system where it's a, it's a 50-50 split. You know, it's, it's a percentage-based slip. Or sorry, it's a percentage-based split, but your salary is a raw number. And that's why escrow exists, because, well, no, you can't have a raw number in a percentage-based league, so we need escrow to protect both you and the owners in case the, the split isn't quite... In, in case revenues aren't as high as we forecasted, or if they're lower than what they forecasted. Like, we need to have some kind of mechanism to get you paid 50% of the cap the way that we agreed on. Well, since we're all in agreement that the owners and the players are splitting it 50-50... Why don't you just sign a 10% of the cap hit contract and whatever the cap hit is or, and whatever the, the salary cap is that year, I get 10% of that. And then we stop arguing about escrow. We stop arguing about all this stupid stuff and we just pay players based on a percentage. That's how agents are looking at contract comparables anyways. That's how we do things nowadays when it comes to negotiations. So why don't we just use cap hit percentages the way that we pay players? Because I think it makes way more sense at the end of the day. Ian, but that would make sense. <laughs> and we actually are not allowed to have that. Did you know? Uh, we also have a 
Oh, I was going to start listing off my problems with the NHL, but I feel like that's just going to make this a depressing end to the podcast. You know, I'll stop myself. I'll consciously stop myself. But I hate this I would agree, so though. I think much. that that's a I love great hockey, idea. You but... sign for 10% of the cap. So let's say McDavid, back then, he signs for 12% of the cap. So 15%. every year he gets 12%. Proper number. <laughs> 15%, yes. And so every year, no matter what the cap is, McDavid gets 15% of it. Yeah. And, oh, wow, the cap, like, boomed this season. Well, good for McDavid. He, his salary boomed. And, you know, in the exactly. NBA, it's funny. We had all these players who were trying to time themselves to – this was this happened a couple of years ago. The, the TV contract was kicking in, and the salary cap was going up, like, exponentially from one season to the next. So everyone was trying to get themselves to sign a free agent contract that summer so that they could make more money that summer. It makes sense. But if you just did things by a cap hit percentage, like, way of doing things, that wouldn't have happened. Because players would have got the same increase in salaries based on the revenues anyways. And if, if the NHL are splitting it 50-50 between players and owners, well, guess what? When the, sal- when the revenues go way up, your salaries are going to go way up. When the revenues dip, your salary is going to dip. And maybe we can stop talking about all this stupid stuff that doesn't actually matter when you really think about it. But I don't know. This is why when, when players start complaining about escrow, I get a bit bothered. I'm like, but you want a 50-50 split of the cap. Like, that's literally what this is. But... Uh, another conversation. And you keep for voting day. for that silly ass escalator, which is even dumber. Yeah. If you just didn't vote for it for like four straight years, you wouldn't have escrow. Yeah, but like this is the nature of like inflation and economics, and yeah, it's uh, wasn't this a fun discussion, everybody? How about we talk oh, more about God, it? Oh God, yeah, it's just <laughs> thrilling. And this is why no one really understands it fully because it's so boring to talk about. You know, it's like. Well, this do is you why want bank- to sit there and read the CBA because, like, I had to, and I it was not all that fun. This is why, like, accountants and lawyers and whatnot make so much money because they just thrive on knowing stuff that people can understand easily, but just get so bored with. They go, you know what? F it. I'll pay you a thousand dollars. Just do this for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have one more question before we get out of here. How long is the Mitch Marner situation going to drag out in thirty seconds or less? Um. How long is the Miko Rantanen, Sebastian Aho, and Braden Point situation going to last? And that the will... first week of July. All right, so that will be my answer. Okay. I'm going to say that we have four comparable RFAs. You can throw Lon AF in there if you wanted to. I just feel like nope, this, nope, this past nope. season is just such a weird thing. And yeah. He doesn't drive play, unlike the other players on that that we mentioned, so it's, it's a bizarre one. But Aho, Rantanen, Point, and Marner are both star free agents, RFAs, that deserve, in my opinion, $10 million. I don't think that's crazy. I don't think it's crazy to say that all of them should get 10. But then if one of them signs for 9 or 9.5, guess what? That's what the other three should sign for. So uh, in a perfect world where players get what they, what they deserve, I hope that these guys get friggin' $11 million. You know, I hope that all these players get paid a lot and we start to see young star players get paid what they deserve and older bad players not get paid that crazy high money that they don't deserve. So... I don't know. It, realistically, probably these contracts fall in the 9 to 10 range, you know, 9.5-ish. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to say that Mitch Marner's gets resolved similarly to when the other ones do, and that's because it'll save me a lot of sleep and headache because I just don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> All righty. And with that, we will end this podcast. Ooh, we'll that was back. a slick way of no commenting, by the way. I like you. <laughs> Dude, I had to take a class in no comment. For a while. So. I gonna say, the second you work uh, for an NHL team, it's like, yep, you know what? No comment. When I go on and I just bash the shit out of the NHL, Rachel will be like, 
All right, and moving on to the next topic, we're going to be discussing... <laughs> <laughs> Just a well masterclass in escape route. <laughs> All righty, well, with that, we'll be back next week, and uh, hopefully we'll have some contracts signed and trades made, and we'll really break down sort of the RFA courting period or UFA courting period and free agency. So that'll be that. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. And again, as a huge draft nerd, I've got a bunch of draft content coming out this week. If you're listening to this now, you probably have time to check out a couple Leafs Geeks podcasts where I'm diving deeper into the draft. And then me and Rachel will be diving deep into stuff after the draft. So it's a fun week for NHL fans, especially that kind of week before free agency, the week after the draft, where there's a lot of, you know, trying to figure out what your team's going to do this offseason, reading the tea leaves moving forward. It's a lot of fun. So I, I think these next, uh, this next week or two is going to be extremely interesting when it comes to breaking down how team is going to build for the next year and beyond. It's always a fascinating time. So Take care, everyone. And yeah, take care. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.